This, this, this is a Tape Deck Podcast. Hey everybody, it's H, and welcome to the latest installment of Dune Pod, your one-stop shop to get ready for the new Dune movie. This week, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host Jason. At its heart, it's nihilism, but on its surface, it looks really cool. And by Emmy-winning producer-director Rob Schroeder. Reagan Dukakis, that brand of Christianity, yuppies, it's all fun stuff. And the writer of their feature film debut, Ultrasound, Connor Stetschult. Every scene that's about the vibe is incredible in this movie, and every scene that's about advancing the plot sucks. We dig in the ultimate cult, emo, high school, time travel movie, Donnie Darko. If you're enjoying the show, we need your help. Leave us a five-star rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcasts, as it really helps new listeners find the show. And be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And now, without further ado, Donnie Darko. Connor, can I just start by asking a question? Like, how did the process go? You write a graphic novel, Generous Bosom, and that is published. Who's the publisher for that? Breakdown Press in London. Nice. And then how does it work? You get a call from Rob, you know, wanting to option the movie and produce it and or the graphic novel and turn it into a film. Like, how does that work? Yeah, he sent me an email. It was like, through a form email thing on my web shop where I sell my comics online. And at first yes. I didn't respond. I was like, I'm not sure if this is for real. But then he sent me a sec- a follow-up email where he was like, no, for real, let's talk about this. And I was like, all right, well, he sent me, he sent me two emails. Well, maybe we'll respond and, and see what this guy has to say. Yeah, it kind of went from there. But yeah, it's funny. Like at first I was like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the web form screens out a lot of people. And Rob, how about you? Like, how did you how did you come up across a graphic novel? And how did you think like this is going to be my first feature film? It, it didn't all happen so fast. I I uh, picked up book one at Secret Headquarters in uh, my neighborhood. Mm. It's a comic shop. Yes. Yep. And that was one. What year was that, Connor? The first book came out in like the fall of 2014. So maybe I think we were talking mm. about before. Maybe it was like early 2015. Maybe when you picked it up or something. Yeah, so I, I picked it up, and the, the whole story is, is told in four books. So book one had just come out. I read that and was curious, but um, the hook hadn't really been set. And then maybe a year, year and a half later, I got book two, and it kind of hmm. it had a perfect sort of cliffhanger ending, and that's, that's what really got me going, and that's when I reached out to Connor. That's amazing. Well, I, I have been fortunate enough. I got to read an early draft of the script. It must have been two, at least two or three years ago. I remember seeing, you know, as as you were kind of putting things together and describing kind of some of the, the vision. And then I was able to finally watch the film today. Oh, yeah. And it really is an amazing, it's an amazing movie. It has an incredible vibe. It is so intense. This is the film ultrasound that these guys have finished. It premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival earlier this year and, you know, we'll be coming to theaters uh, soon. Stay tuned on that. But you guys should just be really stoked. It's, it is a really, really great movie. Thank, Thank you, so you. much. So we are really happy, Rob and Connor. We're so thrilled to have you here on DunePod. Um, we'll have links out so folks can at least check out any information that is available on the film at this point. Um, but Rob, this is your third time on DunePod. Yeah. Wow. Boom. 
I just listened back to uh, to our Inside Lou and Davis episode and all of the Enigma talk and dorm room, uh, you know, oh, yeah. remembrances and whatnot. But uh, we're really happy to have you back. And we've been doing this is season four, and we have been doing the big ones. Uh, we have been tackling, you know, the the biggest films within science fiction, things that were really tied um, and set the stage that that Dune lives in. And so tonight. Continuing that trend, we have frequent Denny collaborator Jake Gyllenhaal mm. um, in the film that really launched his career. It is the 2001 emo high school time travel classic, Donnie Darko. Mm. Hell yes. And by big ones, we mean a movie that was a complete commercial failure. <laughs> <laughs> is that true? I mean, like like in the box office, right? But I mean, DVD sales. In the box office. I'm, I'm sure they did, the they did robust business. Yeah. yeah. No, it was very massive uh in 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 the later stages and we'll we'll cover some of that when we get to this in the in the bottom half of the hour but this is um a great film Jake Gyllenhaal, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Patrick Swayze, Drew Barrymore, Jenna Malone, just a a really awesome film. Next week on Dune Pod. So first of all, wow. we got to travel back in time. Yeah, we Woo. just we just <laughs> dropped our red carpet interview with Denny Villeneuve. And any other cast and crew of Dune that are going to be there. Matt, you know how in the movie business they say that they do takes for protection? Can we can we give ourselves a take here for protection where it's like, you will have heard the episode where we had hoped to go and interview Denny Villeneuve on the red carpet, but situations intervening, Matt got arrested. What are you going to do? Our lawyers will not allow us to release the tapes until... Yeah. <laughs> You know, that episode now has a cult following similar to Donnie Darko. It gets passed around dorm rooms. That's right. So we're pretty excited. Jay, Jay tell me what you think. Like, are, are you ready for, for that red carpet? I'm not. I, don't, I haven't worn anything besides sweatpants in a year and a half. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I have an outfit appropriate for a red I, I really Have we received any wardrobe guidance for this event? We have not, but so this is the Mill Valley Film Festival, and these are going to be screened on Wednesday night at the Rafael. Oh, so, so Lululemon might be appropriate for this event. No, no. I, I have been informed that gowns are worn regularly, so I think we're going to be dressing this thing up. Ah, uh, all right. All of my suits don't fit because I'm fat now, so I'm not really sure. There's a, there's not... a shop that sells like quinceanera gowns just around the corner from where oh. I live now, so if you need me to FedEx you something. Oh, that's great. Send me your measurements. That's great. So we're we're really fired up to get to get in there. But meanwhile, for those of you who have listened to that episode last week, who are listening to this this week, next week we have the real big one because we will have only done like a, a high level spoiler free review. But next week we are doing Dune twenty twenty one full blown after our live IMAX opening night private screening in San Francisco. You will get Jason and my full spoiler reviews, plus all of the reactions from people at the show. It's going to be incredible. We've been waiting two years, and it is finally here next week. That one I feel confident about. That one we don't need any protection coverage for. That one's going to be great. Yeah. Will Warner Brothers Marketing show up? No, I don't think so. I think it's just going to be, I think it's going to be us. I think it's going to be some nice AMC staff. I'm actually, can I just confess something at this point? Sure. I'm a little worried I've been too hyped for this movie at this point. I'm starting to feel uh -oh. like <laughs> I'm starting to feel like there's no way I could possibly like it this much just because <laughs> there was all the tweets. Our good friend Kev, who's in Discord, 
was at the New York Film Festival with, uh, along with here for the film. Was at the uh, New York Film Festival. Saw the movie on Saturday. I saw a bunch of the tweets coming out of the film festival from people who saw it, and it was basically like people had had witnessed some sort of religious transcendent event. Like they were like, you know, the sound and the music has transported me. I did not realize what cinema was until, I mean, like just the most kind of grandiose language. And I I just don't know if I, I don't know if I have that level of joy left in me at this point. Like, I'm just worried. (laughs) I'm not ready to receive it. I'm just confessing that now. Rob and Connor, do you, are you guys on the same wavelength? Have you been tracking this closely? Are, Are you, do you have your tickets to go see it? I do not have my uh, tickets <laughs> yet. Are but. you familiar? There's a movie named Dune coming out. Have you heard of that? Yes, I have. No, I'm I'm a big Dune fan. I've not read all of the Herbert books. I think I I ended somewhere around Chapter House. I think I that's I've, the last book. That's the last one. Okay, I didn't, I didn't make it all the way through. I made it like to the finish line and didn't cross it. <laughs> DNF. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, but I love. I absolutely love Dune and the Dune uh, mythos. Oh, you're a true uh, head. That's yeah, great. I, I really, really love it. So, but yeah, I, I just found out a friend, like a friend of a friend actually like rented out a theater around here. So like I could go to like a private screening with friends. Please yeah, do. I might do that. Please do. That is advisable. Yeah. Rob, will you confirm on the air? Are you coming to San Francisco? Is it going to happen? I really hope so. I, I had every intention and then I found out that my wife is traveling for work and um, it threw a ratchet in. That was about 45 minutes ago. So I'm, um, I'm, work, I'm working on it. Negotiations are ongoing. Negotiations right. are ongoing. I, I hope to be there. That's great. All right. Well, how about if we get into some Dune news? Would you like to know more? <laughs> We're going to hit this one just real quick. Let's just hit our box office numbers. I'm Dune ready. over the weekend. Oh, you got it, Jason? Go. In its fourth weekend, Dune, this is quoting from noted box office source, Luis Fernando, at Luis underscore Fernando underscore J. In its fourth week, Dune grossed estimated 8.8 over 33 markets at the box office, fantastic legs, with a 40.1% drop. Lifting its cumulative box office to 117.1 million will gross more than 130 million in those markets alone. It debuts in 10 markets next week, including Japan and 34 markets the week after. When asked what are Luis Fernando's box office projections, noting, of course, that it is difficult to project because so many markets left open, including China and the US, Luis said, if the trend remains in the remaining markets to open, Dune could dream of a 250 to 300 million outside the US and China and a 440 to 550 million global run if it performs between like the Space Jam numbers and the Godzilla numbers. Wow. It's a lot of a lot of data I just gave you, but it's all very positive. Yeah, and specifically so we had 90 million last weekend, two weekends ago for um, Venom and then this weekend Bond did 56 million in the US. So that was considered kind of like a wah wah it yeah. was below expectations. Yeah. Bond was um, a little disappointing for people. And I've I've still continued to hear Dune at like 30 to 30 to 40 million. Yeah. So that scares me, but I think we're going to be okay. I think we're going to come in way above that. It's going to be great. This is our, they're going to green light. You'll, Fear is the mind killer. We're going to hear the green, the green lining of the sequel sooner than you would imagine. That's all I want is just to see Timothy Chalamet turn into a worm. Yeah. It's like well, let's, what we have to do. Let's go ahead. Just <laughs> since we're talking about Timothy transforming, let's just go ahead and hit the other biggest Dune news, which was the reveal today of, of Timothy as Wonka. Yeah, he's got that top hat on. 
he's got that top hat and he's looking at a chocolate bar like he's up to no good. He looks really um he looks really compelling as Willy Wonka. <laughs> he does look like Gonzo from the Muppet Christmas Carol, so that Yeah, that I'm seeing that help. side by side right now. But he does yeah. he does look a lot like Gene Wilder. Yeah. I could see it. Sure, I could see, I mean He looks like I mean Abraham Lincoln wore a top hat. He looks like, you know, there's like any number of people who've worn top hats. It's fine. Well, Abe had a little more meat on the bones though. I'm excited about this. He's like young Wonka, frisky out there, hunting vermicious canids, sowing his wild chocolate oats. It's gonna be it's gonna be great. Willie's wild chocolate oats. I can't wait to <laughs> Oh man. Coming soon to a Whole Foods near you. <laughs> All right, let me just uh we'll call out our new Discord members this week. Wes, Mr. Strub, you local. Siggy and Plan B. Thank you guys for joining. We're so happy to have you. Welcome to the Discord. Welcome to the live show. And we look forward to many days with you in the future. And as this recording started, Ismail from the 70 millimeter Discord. Yeah. Holy moly. Ismail, what's happening? Yeah. That means we have to officially lock in Children of Men by Alphonse Cuaron, Mexican film director. So great. We'll do it. All right. Well, shall we get into it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Donnie Darko is a journey to control fear and find our place in the universe. Donnie is a troubled teenager in a loving family struggling to separate reality from delusion. His mind racked with medication, he sleepwalks and begins to be visited by Frank, a menacing giant bunny figure who prevents him from being killed in a freak accident, but also tells him the world will end in 28 days, 6 hours, 42 minutes, and 12 seconds. Finding himself head over heels, Donnie will be pushed by Frank to become notorious by committing acts of vandalism that will expose the hypocrisy in the forces controlling his life. Refusing to accept that his love with new schoolmate Gretchen will be torn apart by tragedy, Will he be forced to accept that the only salvation under the Milky Way tonight is to finally let go of being Donnie Darko? Oh, that's it. That's it. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Great. Love it. (laughs) Connor, Rob, what is your history with, with Donnie Darko? Like, when did you first get into it? Tell me, tell me what you have. I'm pretty sure I saw this like at probably the exact right time in my life in probably the exact right circumstances, which was like, I was about the age of Donnie Darko. I was like 16 or something like that, 15, 16. Watched it like rented on a on a VHS probably in a, with a group of teenage friends. Mm-hmm. And we're all just like, this rules. This is the best movie I've ever seen. <laughs> it, hit, it hit me like absolutely perfectly. And where was this? Is this in the Midwest? Uh, I grew up in Pennsylvania. So it was like rural okay. Pennsylvania. Yeah, got it. Got it. And then, Rob, how about you? I'm a little older. I, I was at Sundance in 2001. Oh, Jesus. Um, but I, I didn't have a badge or I had a hard time getting tickets. So I was you didn't, you didn't have a license. You didn't have a wallet at that point. I, was, no, just... I didn't. Need, I was naked. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it was and it was cold. It was just it was yeah. really cold. It was just robbing his alms bowl. I just remember how cold it was. And um, need a top hat. I didn't get Yeah, I didn't yeah. get a ticket to see the film at Sundance, but um, I was witness to the hype and the buzz and the celebrity 
power behind this thing and um everyone was excited for it so then as soon as it came out i i'm sure i saw it in the theater there was uh in the behind the scenes they talked about how it ended up being the hottest buzz film going into sundance and then was considered one of the worst films at sundance did not get picked up and was in like big trouble and and caused them to have to go try and figure out what to do about it um mm-hmm. which i think i think is super interesting memento is another film that has a similar legacy of took a while and didn't nolan had something to do with with donnie darko finding distribution right he got pulled into when they did a screening for new market and pandora you know those production companies um, that, <laughs> but so there was a screening uh, for them, and I think Drew Barrymore had suggested pulling Nolan in to watch it, um, and he just watched it and thought it was great. He didn't like the title cards. That was the only thing. He wanted the font to be changed. <laughs> but his his was after Memento, like the strength of him liking it gave them gave them some power. He's right about the font. Font's not good. <laughs> I don't know if this is the new font or if this was the old font. Oh, I don't know. I want to just start with this. Um, you know, you have Richard Kelly. At the time, he's 22 years old. He's never directed a feature before. He had done student films. And so it was kind of this wild concept of of getting greenlit. And I'll just go ahead and let's lay out some of the behind the scenes here really quick. So originally, it was a really hot script all over Hollywood. And Jason Schwartzman got attached to it um, on the strength of Rushmore. And that got it going and then Drew Barrymore got attracted to it, and she signed on as a producer and to be in the film. And then he dropped out, and they almost lost the whole thing. They considered Patrick Fugit and um, the kid from Sling Blade, um, but they ended up finding Jake and then started to move forward. Four and a half million dollars, 28 days uh, for this film to be made. Wow. That's great. Crazy. 22. Amazing. Yeah, it's a that's amazing that he got this big of a swing right at first at bat. Yeah. Mm. Big mm. swing. And very specifically, he had Stephen Poster as his director of photography, who had done second unit on Close Encounters and Blade Runner and Big Trouble. Um yeah. and yeah. so he was like a super experienced guy that they were able to kind of meld and, and really get it going on. All right, well, let's go ahead and get into this film because there's quite a bit here to work on. Um, So this opening shot on the Carpathian Ridge, Jake asleep on the road and and waking up and smiling, like just an absolutely stunning opening and a very ambitious, this was Richard Kelly's first ever shot that he ever made. So like, how do you, how do you even think about that? Like to try and take that big of a, of an amazing shot? I like it. It's, it's (laughs) There's something weird about the color timing, right? Like the the sky is very like indigo in this opening in a way that it's like not later. Um, mm. And like like so much so that I like stopped the movie and was like, wait a minute, do I have like some setting issue <laughs> on my TV? And then I remember it's like, oh no, that's just what this movie, this is what the, it like, it, it's trying to establish like dark noir like at the beginning, but it's like more of a choice for the opening than, than, anywhere, later. than anywhere else. I mean, I was I was sort of knocked out by that first shot. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was beautiful. And then he jumps on his bike, and you immediately have Echo and the Bunny Men, Killing Moon, and so like the music, you're hooked. I I'm about the same age as as Rob, um, so I graduated from high school in '88 um, mm. and started college and voted for Dukakis <laughs> in '88. Uh, so in that respect, the music and and all of the hooks were very much right on on spot for me. I did note that he passes a red firebird um, as he's riding his bike on the yeah. way down. So that was like nice little touch that was there. Just as they say, killing. 
in yeah. the song. <laughs> it's when the red car passes. And yet this opening sequence was not choreographed to this song. This was What like, was it originally? It was In Excess's Never Tear Us Apart. Oh. That's the thing that keeps blowing my mind when I read stuff about this movie. Like that uh, Mad World also was not the intended yeah. song. Like Mm-mm. that blows my mind. He talks a lot about in the director's commentary that he does with Kevin Smith, like how he writes to a soundtrack. Like the soundtrack is like pretty critical to his process of writing the movie. Some of the songs are in the right place, but a lot of the songs are not, including like this opening sequence, which he had specifically like thought of as being choreographed to a song they just couldn't get the rights to for. Hmm. like for commercial release and yeah that's that's a that's a wild one to me the director's cut has has an excess yes the director's cut has an excess it does yeah it does they got it for that does it have u2's mlk during the the climactic montage as well i don't remember but like it also the songs basically killing moon moves to the party scene like somewhere near where the joy division track is uh Mm. and then a bunch of other stuff a bunch of other stuff moves around pretty significantly. So wild. So at dinner, we have the establishment of the family, uh, which is obviously a really critical bit here. And I love. there's a lot of squeeze one out talk. Do you honestly think Michael Dukakis will provide for this country till you're ready to squeeze one out? Yeah, I do. You're such a fuck ass. <laughs> Please. Did you just call me a fuck ass? Elizabeth, that's enough. You can go suck a fuck. Oh, please tell me, Elizabeth, how exactly does one I, suck I just, a fuck? I don't know. I thought the you script here was, was really hilarious. Love suck a fuck. I, I also yeah. think it's funny that, like, for some reason, the littlest girl says, like, when do I squeeze, I squeeze one, one out? out? And he says, not until eighth grade. That's, like, the best line in there, I think. <laughs> Excuse me. Donnie, you're such a dick. That, for some reason, though, like, stops the whole conversation. Like, everyone's like, how dare you, sir? And it's <laughs> right. like. Up until then, it was like fine. Like, you know, it was like not a problem. Um, Yeah. All right. Well, so then we we have, you know, the first of the cards, October 2nd, 1998, and we have Donnie sleepwalking. And this is the introduction of Frank and his voiceover saying, wake up. I've been watching you. Come closer. Um, He gives the countdown of the days and says that this is when the world is going to end. So like, what's your... You know, Rob, your reaction, you know, seeing this and uh, and how this unfolds on, on first viewing. I mean, this is this is one of those films that um, I love movies that uh, you have to see a second time. And when you watch it a second time, it's a totally different experience. Mm-hmm. This is one of those scenes that on first watch is so completely different. <laughs> Than when you mm-hmm. see it a second time. Just the sound of his voice. It's so ominous and intense, and you really don't have a sense of, of what the hell is going on. So now we have the big turn, which we have uh, his sister Elizabeth getting home late. You can hear Frank's car pulling away and, and honking. You have this very large crash, and this uh, what is revealed to be a jet engine having crashed. And the idea of FAA researching, uh, you know, the engine crash and what's happening. Those guys are men in black, right? Like, very obviously. <laughs> you think? I didn't really get the big conspiracy. Like vibe. I thought they were, I like legit thought I was like, oh, they're just like the FAA. They don't know what's going on. I don't know. I, I love the dude sense. in like the flame retardant suit using a literal garden hose to like hose off the jet <laughs> engine. <Yeah. laughs> that, that made me laugh so hard. <laughs> That's amazing. And uh, and the reaction of relief when Donnie, who had been sleepwalking on the golf course, comes back. 
the family is very is very relieved of the father's reaction um and rose as well is great i love i mean let's just get it out like uh rose as uh you know president roslin from battlestar galactica is so amazing in this film start to finish still my president (laughs) (laughs) yeah she's awesome she's great She's she's a fantastic actress. My favorite scene of her is when she has the wine glass and like yeah. her friend is like telling her about Patrick Swayze's thing and she's like trying to show her the redecoration that they're doing after the crash and like her friend just wants to talk about Patrick Swayze and she's like, "Oh, okay, we can talk about this bullshit again." Like she sells that whole reaction so well and she basically has no lines. She's a mm. she's a treasure. Yeah, she keeps I feel like she adds a lot to that character. Like it felt like Sometimes the way scenes are written with her, like it, I think a, like a lesser actor would have like veered into maybe like repetitive territory or like or just mm-hmm. hitting like one note as that mother character. And there's just like she never plays it the same in any scene. Like she really just feels like a, a full person in a, in mm-hmm. a really awesome way. Mm. So Rob is an aspiring filmmaker in 2001 out in the cold, figuratively <laughs> and literally, uh, you know, head over heels, needle drop happens. And we have this scene at school. Like what what impact did that have on you as a as a filmmaker? I, I don't know if I I don't know if I have, I have a memory of, of myself experiencing that scene at that time. But I mm. mean, one of the things that I think is fascinating is the. You know, this film was made in, written in 97 and premiered in 2001. And it's, it takes place in 88. Mm-hmm. And, and we're still making genre films that take place in the 80s. And it's, it seems like a, you know, recently has been a, a real fascination with Stranger Things and Mandy. There are a lot of great 80s, you know, It Follows is awesome. Um, mm. And I wonder what that is because... It, Men of a certain age? Yeah, I didn't make, that could be it, but it works really well. I think it's also, I, I feel like I felt the the vibe of like the video rental store generation uh, mm-hmm. in this in this film big time, like with the way there's there's references to lots of films and stuff like that. I think that 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 is something that is like carried through like the the sort of very emotionally affecting experience of like renting a movie keeps bringing filmmakers back to the 80s. And those mm. being the films, you know, that you would rent, the cheap ones. Mm. I loved how it, <laughs> you know, it did really get at a lot of 80s things, um, you know, like Reagan and Dukakis, that brand of Christianity, mm-hmm. yuppies. And totally. It's all the, like, fun, ch- fun. Child stuff. molestation panic as well. Yeah. 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 But it all seemed very relevant. It did. Like, still- and also, I'd, I'd read that. Um, one reason the film might not have done well in, at the box office was 9-11 because um, oh, yeah. plane crashes were, you know. It wasn't super cool for a minute. You couldn't, have, <laughs> yeah. you couldn't have a plane crash and be super cool for a minute. Five and a half weeks later, yeah. It was a pretty tough, pretty tough time. Well, I, I will say as a non-filmmaker, I was stunned by this scene. The whole thing of like the, it tilts as they come out of the yeah. back of the bus, walking inside when it is it over cranking and then under cranking when it like speeds up in yeah. portions mm-hmm. and then slows down in portions the bad guy snorting coke uh her shutting the locker um 
I love the character moments and how you get each little person. And then you go outside. What is the deal with Dr. Carter? Okay. Noah Wiley in this film, like his reaction at meeting Jim Cunningham, he's like making all these faces and stuff. He knows he's sus. Noah Wiley knows what's up. He knows the vibe (laughs) and he knows that it's sus. I mean, like in fairness, Patrick Swayze does look like someone you shouldn't trust. So yeah, both he and Drew Barrymore know that it's, that's not the jam. Well, how about turning and seeing, you know, the sisters uh, dance troupe? Yeah, like unbelievable. That's the that's the like cherry on the cake. I feel like that was the moment, yeah, where I I feel like I remember like seeing that scene being like, this is really over the top, but like in a really good way. Like when I was a kid, I feel like my tolerance for things being over the top was like a lot less than it is now. <laughs> I, I, mm. I like it more now, I would say, probably. Totally. But uh, when they turn to Sparkle Motion, it's sort of like, oh, he like gets it. Like it's part, it's all like, we're just like in He's an exaggerated fun. reality. And yeah, that that I feel like is like the this like the punctuation. So it's perfect. Yeah. Absolutely loved it. Um, so let's see. So we go from there to Miss Pomeroy, you know, Drew Barrymore producing and starring. So they had one week of time with Drew Barrymore. Um, and so she's teaching Graham Greene's destructors. So Jason, talk to us about this. I just read it today, actually, as as I'm a serious podcaster and I do my research. Uh, (laughs) And it also has the virtue of being short. It's only 16 pages long. And you can get it as a free PDF on the internet. I think Mm. it's the first Graham Greene I've ever read. And it is the story of a group of young kids in post-World War II England who are uh, part of like a little gang of young kids who go around and cause mischief. And every day they get together in the sandlot and decide what kind of mischief they're going to get into for the day. Like one of the things they say they're going to do is like, they are going to go to different bus lines and see who can take the bus uh, for free without getting caught by the conductor or whatever. Um, And this guy who they call, whose like name is Mr. Thomas, but they call misery uh, lives in a house that's like next to a lot that was bombed out during the blitz and still hasn't been repaired. And his house is in some state of disrepair such that he has to go outside to use the bathroom. Uh, like his, his mm. loo is in like the bombed out courtyard. Um, but one of the kids comes and says, I've went inside old misery's house and it's gorgeous. It's got all these old panels and like this amazing staircase. That's like counterbalanced. It's like, looks like a corkscrew. And like my dad told me it was designed by Christopher Wren. It's amazing. And they're like, wow, that's cool. He's like, we should, uh, destroy it. He's like, we should destroy (laughs) this house. Uh, and they basically conspire to go into old misery's house while he's out of town and take the house apart just like panel by panel and brick by brick. And like, you know, they flood it and they just, you know, they they start taking the windows out. And they're so dedicated to this that old misery comes home at some point early and they lock him in his outdoor bathroom so they can finish the job because they're like just so dedicated to this act of destruction that it's, you know, and it says explicitly in the text that like it's being pursued as though it is an act of creation that they simply have to finish it. Um, mm. And that's like the theme that crosses over into the movie that's this is like a classic teacher in a classroom telling you what the movie's about scene you know right, which right, villeneuve right. has done as well where it's yeah. it's explicitly the idea that destruction is an act of creation mm, that was deeper than i thought uh you were gonna go that was amazing i knew you were gonna test me on this one i i absolutely a hundred percent knew like 12 hours ago he's when we get to the graham green part he's a hundred percent gonna ask me about it and i'm going to read the fucking story and be prepared. Yeah. 
You passed. All right. And we do have also the introduction of Gretchen by Jenna Malone. How great is Jenna Malone? She's Real awesome good. in this. And generally. Yeah. And Jenna generally. Generally. Yeah, she, <laughs> she also gets the best intro line where Drew Barrymore says, sit next to the boy you think is the cutest and the class like titters. And she says, quiet, let her choose. Yeah. Like it's so, like, <laughs> it's fucking amazing. And then she wants the seat next to Donnie. And so she tells Joni to go pound sand and get lost. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of like this plus the dinner scene at the beginning, the suck a fuck stuff. You're just like, oh, like the ear of this movie is so unique like the relationships mm. between kids and adults is so different that it it's very seductive for a certain audience yeah nice so we have donnie on his way to meet his therapist they almost run over grandma death uh play uh, you know r sparrow who is the old woman in the street and donnie goes to the therapist played by Catherine ross from the graduate oh, yeah. yeah and bonnie and or, or uh, butch cassie and sundance kid Mm, oh, wow. oh my God. Wow. Um, so how about we have the first introduction of Jim Cunningham and his controlling fear video. Yeah. For my entire life, I was a victim of my own fear. Love. I was feeding fear. Yeah, this is one, this is one, I wasn't exactly sure how to like phrase this, but yeah, there's something really interesting about like the cynicism about self-help. In this, it's like so '90s, like attitude of like, oh, like, oh, you believe in this shit? Like, get out of here! I'm Bart Simpson, yeah. you know? Like, I don't believe uh -huh. in anything. But like, I feel like, I feel like these days, I was just kind of like tracking, like, what is different about like American culture now or something? I feel like, I feel like the 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 counterculture is a lot more earnest these days. Mm. There's also some '80s patched in there too. Yeah, just that. I don't know that much about what you would call that brand of Christianity. It's like prosper evangelical, the prosperity, I would say. The, the prosperity. It's like gospel, yeah, prosperity church or something. Yeah, or yeah, new yeah. Christian, new Christian movement. I don't know. Like, yeah, new Christian mm. thought or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And I remember that in the eighties. So mm -hmm. you know, I grew up in North Florida, and there were lots of every brand of Christianity, but um, mm -hmm. that one too, and the idea of like you know using Christ God to get rich. Yeah. <laughs> and that felt God, God wants you to be rich. Yeah. You deserve it. Um, yeah. If you let, you know, God will help you achieve that. And, um, and that to me reminded me of, you know, growing up in the eighties. I, I love the, the music, like the, the cheesy keyboard stuff and that for two years, I thought wetting the bed was normal. I'm not afraid anymore. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and Swayze talking about human life is too precious to be controlled by fear. So I love the fact that it's shot on video. Apparently that was all Swayze's own wardrobe that his wife picked for him um, mm. to wear. And that was shot at his house, right? Yes. And they, yeah. they shot the whole thing and he edited it together and he had a party with the cast and crew on the Sunday before they started the film. And he's like, I want to show you guys what we're doing. And he showed that to them and everybody freaked out. Um, and they were like, holy shit. Yes, let's go. Um, <laughs> so that was like a way to kick off, uh, kick off filming. Can we talk a little bit about this theme that we just sort of stumbled into about the self-help stuff, like being cynical sure. about the self-help stuff? I think it's a useful entry point as well as with the Graham Greene stuff into one of the things we're going to just gonna have to struggle with with this movie or talk about with this movie, which is like its flirtation with nihilism 
Um, and, and that's very much like, it, it's very much like of the moment. Like it was this like nineties moment. And I think like of this movie as being sort of alongside train spotting and like fight club as like three mm -hmm. movies that very much had this, uh, flirtation with nihilism and, you know, this sort of like white male flirtation with nihilism specifically. And, and like, and like, you know, that self-improvement thing, like the tide of fight club is perhaps the most direct because it's like, you know, the explicit line in fight club of like, you know, if self-improvement is masturbation, like what is self-destruction? Like there's like this, this explicit drive towards self-destruction. Uh, and mm. you know, similarly, like when Ed Norton beats up Jared Leto, he says like, I just want to destroy something beautiful. Like that's very much like the Graham Greene uh, destructors theme of like, they just mm -hmm. wanted to destroy this house because it was something beautiful. Like he just wanted to punch Jared Leto in the face until he's unrecognizable because he was something beautiful. Um, I, I think like, that's something that's like a thematic that's very much of the moment that looking at it from a 2021 perspective, isn't the strongest. Wait, but who's, who's doing the punching here. So like in, in my mind watching it and again, now as a hardcore atheist, I like look at disdain with all of the the Christianity elements here, um, and I'm like, it's completely corrupt. It's a complete hypocritical uh, setup here. You've got Jim, who's an awful person. You've got Kitty, who is blindly following and and completely willing to write off her own senses and reality with conspiracy theories. Like this, all felt extremely relevant. And Frank seems to be driving Donnie to take actions that are exposing the hypocrisy and shining a light on it. So, I mean, like, obviously there's no defending the Patrick Swayze character. He's a pedophile. Like he's literally like the <laughs> most, he's the literally the most uh, loathsome character you could possibly imagine. And obviously farmer is, is similarly like completely loathsome, but you know, he's also like flooding the school, right? Like he's also like yeah. just engaging in destruction generally. And then ultimately this movie ends with his suicide. Like he ultimately destroys himself. So like the, <laughs> it's not really just Fair. about punching out these straw men, you know, hypocrites. It's like a more broadly, like, you know, drive towards like, it's, it's more broadly trying to grapple with this idea of the pubescent male's desire for destruction. I was thinking the whole time I was watching, or actually this was like a, a, a thought I had before I watched it. I was like, I feel like this movie is like really new metal. It's like <laughs> philosophically new metal. And when I watched it, I was like, it is like it was like more and more like the more I watched it and and kind of like what you just laid out I feel like is like sort of the philosophical grounding of new metal of just being like an enraged young man and mm. and like wanting to like wanting like the the violence that you want to do to be like a productive thing in the world and like Donnie Darko's this fantasy of like acting out this like adolescent rage and having it be this like unveiling of the truth in your Who would be community. the definitive new metal band that would be? It would be like, okay. I have. I have. It'd be Limp Biscuit. <laughs> oh no! Because because oh, no. But like you think about it, like Wes Borland, the guitar player from Limp Biscuit, often dressed like a bunny on stage. 
Interesting. Wow. And there's also like there's Damn also me. like the sort of like eighties throwback <laughs> thing where like their first hit was was a cover of George Michael's Faith. Mm. Well, I guess it would be nice if I could touch your body. I know and so it's like this weird thing where they're like looking back to the eighties and like pulling the the aesthetics forward, but like making them more aggressive. And yeah, and then like I just feel like Jake Gyllenhaal like doing the <laughs> doing the uh, Jack Nicholson stare is like straight out of a new metal music video. The design of Frank is straight out of a new metal music video. It all just like, wow. Yeah. Wow. Rob, your take on Limp Bizkit. Oh, I, I can't talk about Limp Bizkit. I don't know that much. <laughs> I, They're I also was, from Florida. You guys should both be. I know. We should, we should know a lot more. I was, I was pretty impressed. They're all impressed. Florida men. I was pretty impressed by those recent performances, I guess, but yeah. I don't know wow. all I don't know all of the lore. Um, can we talk about Seth and Ricky? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they're picking on Gretchen and Seth says to which is not played by Seth Rogan, he plays Ricky, but Seth says, Has anyone ever told you that you're sexy? I like your boobs. <laughs> I like your boobs. Hey, what kind of line is that? I don't know. It is Seth Rogen's first on-screen line in his <laughs> yeah. first. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah it's his, his first, first movie. This is his, his theatrical debut. <laughs> I also love Seth Rogen's pronunciation of boobs. Really needs yep. to go boobs. on this. So, yeah, there's like a there's some sort of diphthong in there that's Canadian. just yeah. pure art. <laughs> boobs. I can't do he's it. He's also he's really like you. You cut that guy's hair short at that age, and he's really menacing in this. Like, yeah, he's a very convincing bully. Definitely. So that does give the opportunity for Donnie to um, to kind of step in and, and be helpful with Gretchen and they start going out, whatever that means. But then we cut to, you know, one of the most infamous scenes in the film, which is Smurfette's origin. <laughs> Beer and pussy. That's all I need. So we got to find ourselves a Smurfette. Smurfette. Mm-hmm. Not some like tight ass middle sex chick, you know? Like this cute little blonde that'll get down and dirty with the guys. Like Smurfette does. Smurfette doesn't fuck. That's bullshit. Smurfette fucks all the other Smurfs. Why do you think Papa Smurf made her? It's because all the other Smurfs were getting too horny. No, 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 not Vanity. I heard he was a homosexual. Okay, well, you know what? Then she fucks them while Vanity watches, okay? Well, what about it's Papa pretty Smurf? far out there. Yeah, it's kind of like a Quentin Tarantino. That's what I was going to uh, say. It's like a Top bad, Gun. like, third yeah. generation. Yeah. Like, as Kev says in chat, it clearly feels like a riff off of the opening of Reservoir Dogs. Like, the you can ride mm-hmm. my tail anytime Tarantino mm. monologue. Um, mm-hmm. I think, I mean, it's it's an entryway generally for, like, some of the stuff that's going on with pop culture as, like, signifier in this movie, which is obviously most significantly expressed by the soundtrack. And again, similarly to Fight Club, uses music of a slightly prior generation to anchor a vibe of it, of the thing of the movie being cool. Train Spotting did this too, using you know oh, like yeah, Lou absolutely. Reed and, and Iggy Pop. Like it basically uses what like I always think of as like Big Brother music. Like if you were a Gen X kid, this was like your older siblings' music. Like you know, mm. like if you're my mm-hmm. age, like this is like if you had like friends who had like a sibling who was like eight years older, like they'd be the ones who listened to Joy Division. I love Joy Division, but I never heard, I would say Joy Division was like, I was three years old when Joy Division was happening. Like I, I didn't really get a chance experiencing that level of angst as a toddler. Um, And so- <laughs> 
it's using that soundtrack to like anchor these like cool pop culture vibe um, that is again sort of part of that same you know young male nihilistic like sort of ethos of the of the whole thing that I think is is a similar thread between these these three movies. Yeah, it totally read it read to me like like how every like college dude wants to see himself like drunk at a party being like listen like he's like holding the he's holding the the thing of whiskey and being like listen i'm going to shut you down with my my interpretation of pop culture right now like <laughs> it felt it felt real sweaty in the in the rewatch <laughs> late night sitting on the couch trying to yeah. impress people just trying to dunk yeah. on your friends with your smurf knowledge yeah exactly <laughs> So we have the scene with Donnie and Frank kind of looking through each other through like some kind of barrier. There's been discussions about mirrors. He's not actually, Donnie's not looking in the mirror in this, in this moment, but just that whole shot of touching, you know, the, the barrier between them, uh, the sound that is there and, you know, him asking, how can you do that? And Frank saying, I can do anything I want. And so can you. And asking if he believes in time travel. So is it a good time to talk a little bit about the director's cut like i did not watch the director's cut i watched the the standard one so i understand in the director's cut and i I i'll just say the next scene is uh dr carter explaining time travel so my understanding is that the director's cut shows like the book that roberta sparrow wrote uh, about the philosophy of time travel and kind of gives a lot more of the detail is that basically this the story yeah, the director's cut basically makes explicit the sort of mechanics of the time travel stuff. Like it introduces a lot of like just explicit explanations of like, oh yeah, like here's what's going on, here's the time loop that's being created, here's the tangent universe. It names like sort of a lot of the concepts that are more abstract in the theatrical release. And Rob, your your take as a as a director on, you know, leaving that stuff out versus versus laying it all on the table. I, I'm in favor of leaving it out, but, um, it's just a different experience, a different movie. And if you wanted to call that other version, the director's cut, you have to assume that he felt that the ambiguity wasn't helping tell his story. So maybe Mm. he wanted that there. 2001 is a classic example of that too, (laughs) um, where I don't know if, it's in the book, obviously, but also there was an interview that surfaced recently from 1980 mm-hmm. where um, a Japanese journalist gets Stanley on the phone and asks him to explain the ending. And he, do- <laughs> he does. He does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I saw that. Yeah. And it's cool. I enjoyed seeing it, but I didn't need to see it because right. Right. I, preferred, I preferred the ambiguity. And, you know, there's a lot of mystery, I think, unintended, you know, maybe that makes magic well there's just a different it's a different version you know it's obviously he wanted more he wanted you to understand more and and it wasn't there and maybe that was an accident maybe that was on purpose i don't know maybe he changed his mind but um i didn't feel like it needed to be explained away and i didn't watch the director's cut but i did read what was in there from wikipedia got it (laughs) so (laughs) i 
I think people often assume that just the directors want everything to be longer all the time and they just want more stuff, um, which I don't think is necessarily correct. It's certainly not the best thing for, for these films. And specifically, like there are a lot of people who were mad on the in in the Dune Reddit Discord that Dune is not three hours long. Like, why didn't Denny make part one three hours long? And it's like, I don't want it to be three hours long. Like, I want a tight, taut story, start mm-hmm. to finish, give us what we need and hit it. Like it doesn't need to be drawn out just because you can. I think you, it should always be in service of the story and the emotion that's there. Yeah. I read something where it was like. Richard Kelly doesn't even call that the director's cut. He calls it like the extended cut or something like that. I think he he did it maybe more as sort of like almost like fan service or something like because they had the extra footage and people were so rabid to be like, what does it mean? I think that they did a cut that was longer, but, but I, at least like, you know, in the, whatever it was like the IMDb trivia or whatever that where I read this, he was like, Mm. I think he was happy with the theatrical cut, but yeah, but then made this like for the DVD sort of market or whatever. Yeah, exactly. I think, I think this right. was to help push it. This was help to push the DVD sales up and up and over the top. So we do have um, Donnie talking to Dr. Thurman. And through this whole process, he's very transparent with her. Like he is telling her the truth about what is happening and, and his experience. And we do have the revelation of what Grandma Death whispered in his ear earlier in the film, which was to say that uh, every every living thing dies alone. And this whole discussion about what it means to be alone. Cheerful. It's a cheerful theme for mm-hmm. a movie. Yeah. Well, I mean, there is something true. And he says that he doesn't debate it anymore, that it's the you know, that it's absurd. And she says the search for God is absurd. And Donnie says, it is if everyone dies alone, I don't want to be alone. So he is just really in his feelings and dealing with that pain. <laughs> and then we have things. the spears coming out of people's chests. So we have the abyss effect. This yeah. this felt this felt weird to me, and I forget the the producer or the editor was like, "That's his thing. He's able to take other people's stuff and put his own spin on it." Like to me, this was a little too much abyss in terms of the execution. Yeah, r- remind me how the effect is used in the in the abyss. Is it used as like a ta- like a time? No, it's just the water. It's, it's the water moving through these long water spears that unfold that move exactly the same way and look right. exactly the same. They're just not coming out of a chest. Yeah, I don't know. I feel I find like the CGI stuff that just looks so much like CGI kind of I can look at that a whole lot more than stuff that's like trying to be sure reality, you know, that stuff felt like not as bad, you know, as as I like when the when the tube comes up to his face that it makes his eyes go all dilated. I think that's a a good effect. I'm looking into your tubes. Yeah. So we have the we have the scene where there's the cut back and forth between Dr. Thurman talking to his parents. We we both felt that it was time for us to come in and, and discuss what I think is going on with your son. Yes. Going back and forth um, with him stabbing well, at the mirror. Like that scene, the sound as he is smashing on that portal or whatever, uh, that barrier is just incredible. <laughs> Whatever will help him, really. Is, that's why we're here. I, it's funny you, wrote, you say that, because I wrote that down, too. I wrote music during the mirror scene, growly. <laughs> it, was very, uh, it, was, it was very good. The music throughout is really good, yeah. I, I really loved it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel dated. It really serves the mood. It doesn't overpower anything. I love like just the ominous bed of like that it does a lot of the time. That 
that I mean just is is right up my street. Yeah. And when it when it gets in a dun 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 dun. Mm-hmm. It has yeah. that intense march, and then mm-hmm. other times it's just totally spacey, ethereal, sometimes like almost uplifting. There's like these little kind of uh, more mellow parts depending on what, what's happening. Um, so I just, I thought that was really terrific. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we have the showdown with Donnie and Jim. Oh my God. I mean, just the, the dialogue in this film, like as each of the kids are getting up to say something to Jim and like one of the kids says, I worry that my sister eats too much and, and the other one shouts out, shut up, Cam. I don't know. I, it just is great. And effectively, Donnie, hearing all of this bullshit and knowing it's bullshit, like that is the, that's the feeling, right? That we're meant to have here. Yeah. yeah. This is like, Donnie as this is Donnie's like hero moment really in the movie. This is like when we're most strongly on his side with no uh, sort of equivocation whatsoever, because he's like going after someone who's clearly terrible and doing it like with aplomb. Yeah. I remember having exactly like that fantasy in high school. I forget who the like, who the, who the, um, yeah, who the presenter was that day. But I just remember being like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. I'm going to ask this guy how much they're paying him to be here. And then everyone will know that like, this is bullshit, you know? <laughs> I, I, but yeah, that one hit me hard. I was like, oh man, I remember just thinking these exact thoughts. <laughs> God, they, they did that in the Simpsons, right? Like they had like the Christian team that showed up to like do a presentation. Yeah. These guys must be millionaires. I bet they get all kinds of girls. I question the educational value of this assembly. Hey, it'll be one of their few pleasant memories. That was amazing. We definitely had that at my Christian school that I went to. Like, people would come in and do, like, cheerleading and, you know, and then talk about God's plan or whatever. Um, yeah, my, my friend was telling me about some, like, anti-drug thing that came to his, his house. Yes. They, they were called, like, the Power Squad or something like that. And they were, yes. like, ripping telephone books in half and, like... <laughs> amazing. <laughs> like, you can't do this on drugs! <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right. Well, so this is the most relevant scene for Dune Pod, which is Donnie talks to Dr. No, Carter I think what you're talking about, about is, um, predestination. Oh, yeah. Well, if God controls time, then all time's predecided. I'm not following you. Like every living thing follows along set path. And if you could see your path or channel, then you could see into the future, right? Like, uh, that's a form of time travel. Well, you're... you're contradicting yourself, Donnie. If we were able to see our destinies manifest themselves visually, then we would be given a choice to betray our chosen destinies. And the mere fact that this this choice exists would make all preformed destiny uh, come to an end. Not if you travel within God's channel. So Jason, break it down relative to Paul and what we've learned here. Yeah, I mean, I do think it is a pretty good parallel to Dune, to be perfectly honest, because like one of the things that Paul struggles with and that, you know, Paul has the ability to see the future, to see multiple potential paths of the future, um, but he's unable to determine which of his actions will select any of those futures. Like he, he can just see that there's multiple versions coming and he knows that any given choice in a given moment might slightly alter which multiverse you end up in but he's not able to so precisely control the variables that he can say okay so i'm going to do this and we end up here and what what this leads to thematically in in dune 
is the idea of prescience as this form of stasis that imprisons those who have that ability from making real choices because they kind of are faced with the futility of it. It's almost like you can no longer change it. Like it would be like being able to see it unfolding in front of you and you literally can't change it and you are forced to follow that path. Yeah. And so I think Donnie is sort of articulating the same idea, which is like the way out of it is to kind of succumb to be in God's channel and just say like, okay, like, yes, things are predestined. You make the best choices you can because you still have agency, but like you're following, you're following some greater groove that's like outside of your ability to really alter. Hmm. Are you fans of um, Don't Look Now, the Nicholas Rogue film? Mm -mm, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. What is it? Uh, it's like it's on many lists as the the greatest uh, British horror film of all time, and mm. you could you could make the case that it's the greatest British film of all time. But it's uh, Nicholas Rogue with Donald Sutherland. Oh my god! And, look at uh, Donald whoa. Sutherland's mustache in this it's movie. Amazing. What year? It's amazing. What year? Seventy three. Seventy seventy three. It's best known for a very graphic sex scene that was rumored to be real, mm. but the horror in it has very much to do with this exact topic and it it's rendered hmm. perfectly. That's great. But now on the list. I had I had one thought just about the predestination oh, thing. That that was something where I was like I, I thought the choice like that that's where like the choice to set it in eighty eight and in particular to have like the Dukakis Bush election as backdrop mm. for the, the film mm. felt really like uh right on and 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 sort of reflective of the themes in the movie because we all know the outcome of that election. And it's sort of like that mm. same idea of like futility where, you mm. know, like the sisters voting for Dukakis, but everybody who sees the movie knows Dukakis lost. It's right. sort of the same sort of like feeling of, we know the future of this film in a lot of ways. Mm. Mm. Trapped. So Trapped we have uh, Donnie and Gretchen's <laughs> first kiss. They, you know, they go to a Halloween double feature of the evil dead and the last temptation of Christ. It was supposed to be Chud, but they couldn't get the rights. Um, mm. and they had set up the set in Santa Monica outside a theater. And apparently Sam Raimi was driving home and happened to look across the theater and see a film crew shooting with the evil dead outside the theater. And so pulled over and was like, what the hell's going on? Mm. And then came in and met them and, uh, and hung out a little bit. Oh, that's amazing. But this, this is a super interesting turn in the film where Frank is there as Donnie's sitting there and he says to Frank, Why do you wear that stupid bunny suit? Why are you wearing that stupid man suit? But Frank's yeah. voice is normal now and he, mm -hmm. takes off his, he takes off his helmet. So like, what is going on here? He is the what is it the 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 manipulated dead or something? That's the the manipulated dead. Yeah, that's another one of the concepts that becomes explicit in the. So why is Frank's dead. why is Frank's voice not the same menacing thing and and just th there's a big turn of suddenly having oh this is a a human boy. It's not Donnie who I assumed it would be. Um, I don't know. It's I just think a big turn. I might be wrong, but I think his voice gets progressively clearer because I feel like I don't remember like I remember. When I watched it, like the first scene when his voice comes in, I'm like, this, uh, the, the effects they have on this voice is amazing. It sounds so good. And then like not relishing it as much as it went on, being like, oh, I think it's like not as present. And then it was gone by, by that scene. So I think they kind of like taper it off as the film progresses. Mm. Mm. I would have to double check and see if it comes back, yeah. at, uh, at, you know, as it goes. 
there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. I mean, I don't know how, how much we want to get into this, but like this whole thing of like, why are you called Frank? It's the name of my father and his father before him. Like, I don't know. It just like, yeah. it felt like there was a lot going on here. His eye is bleeding. He is Obviously been shot in the eye. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which That's is also the eye that, that Donnie was like stabbing towards in the previous scene with him. Oh, really? Yeah. He's like oh, stabbing. He turns, he He's turns stabbing and it flashes, over flashes, right? Yeah. Mm, I didn't notice that. Nice. Nice. Yeah, same eye. This is kind of where we get to like the interstellar tenant debate of like, does it really matter? Like, does like the, like, there's definitely an underlying reality to what's going on that explicitly exists in the director's cut. And like, you can read about in wikis and in other places. Like, there's definitely an explanation, but like, does it really matter? I think the movie is better without that stuff and is Mm. better just like on a, ambiguous vibe level than it is like sort of with the explicitness of how all these powers work yeah Yeah. every every scene that's about the vibe is incredible in this movie and every scene that's about advancing the plot sucks (laughs) right exactly i think that's right (laughs) like like, i just want those scenes like out you know i think that's right i want i want i want just like the all montage (laughs) version or something exactly where you just lay in this vibe. Well, yeah. I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what doesn't suck is sparkle motion. Exactly. Um, because every time they appear, they're in a montage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was absolutely incredible. Their performance and also the shots of the crowd reacting to it. And there's a shot of Drew Barrymore, of Miss Pomeroy. She's standing there and she's like really vibing with it, but then making sure that people aren't seeing her in the midst of it. I just, I love it. It's so great. Yeah. yeah. And intercut with Donnie splashing gasoline and burning down Jim's house. That is so well done. Just phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I was wondering, did the choreography from uh, Napoleon Dynamite take the choreography from this? Like, mm. exactly? It looks like the same dance moves. Boy, good question. Good question. Possible. They're at least, the, they're at least like the same like movement vocabulary, maybe arranged in a different way, but... Very, very similar scenes. It was supposed to be West End Girls uh, by the Pet Shop right. Boys, uh, but they couldn't they couldn't afford it. But just just really, really uh, terrific. And we transition out of this. Uh, we have the revelation that that Jim's house has a kitty porn dungeon, and which is like one uh, of the most memorable combinations of words that I, <laughs> I like. Whenever I think of this movie, I always think kitty porn dungeon. Yeah. <laughs> Right behind cellar door. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right behind the cellar door is the kitty porn dungeon. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, so we have Kitty talking to Rose, asking her to chaperone and saying, "Now believe me, of all the other mothers, I would never dream of asking you, but none of the other mothers are available to go." I don't know, Kitty. It's a bad weekend. Eddie's in New York. Rose. Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. (laughs) Amazing, her performance in this. Yeah. It's kind of amazing because it's become such like a a meme. Like, you know, that line is like just the the shorthand for the film. That when it pops up in the movie, it's like sort of the Leonardo DiCaprio gif of just like, oh, there, that's the thing. She said the thing. Uh, (laughs) 
well, this is a really this this does lead. So Rose has to leave. The father we've already established is going to be out of out of town. But I love this notion that as Rose is telling Donnie that she's leaving, he says, "How does How's it feel to have a wacko for a son?" It feels wonderful. Like that is a really tender mm-hmm. moment, even though he hasn't been great to her. Like her complete acceptance and commitment to do anything to help him is pretty amazing. Mary McDonald, incredible, should be in yeah. all the things. Mm. Yeah, we didn't we didn't call out how in the beginning he calls her a bitch, like totally, yeah, totally out of line. Yeah, yeah. that's that was where I was that where I, one of the first ones where I was like, this is so new metal. It's just like just yeah, angsty kid being like, you're a bitch, you're a mom. Bitch, mom. Give me a Pepsi. <laughs> yeah. You're like, a bitch. <laughs> And then she's so hurt by it. The good, the good part of that is when she goes to the dad, he's like, our teenage son just called me a bitch. And he's like, you're not a bitch. You're bitching. You're bitching. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Love that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The dad is great. Like the fact that he's laughing at everything and, you know, kind of trying to keep things in a right perspective, I thought was, yeah. I thought was pretty awesome. Got yeah. a good sense of humor. Um, all right. So we do have, we do have the cellar door scene, which I do want to just hit for a second and say that is one thing that stuck with me more than anything else. What cellar door? This famous linguist once said that of all the phrases in the English language, of all the endless combinations of words in all of history, that cellar door is the most beautiful. Cellar door. But can we just talk about Sharita and like what is, why is Sharita such an important through line through this film? Because she is like referenced many times through this. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't know what her place in in the. In the I don't know. She's just like she's works. like one of the kids who's also being picked on, and she's kind of dealing with those feelings of isolation. But she is one of the people during Mad World that is one of the few characters that's shown um, her reaction as this is happening. I think it's also definitely early on. She's she's sort of there just to make us like Donnie a little bit more because like when when he first shows up, he is just sort of a dick. And, mm-hmm. and but then like you have the scene of him sort of defending her at the bus stop and then you're like, OK, this guy's not so bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like she's mostly there just to like kind of soften Donnie's harder edges or something. Well, it's not going good for Donnie. He talks to the therapist <laughs> and he says that he, he says he could see him. And the therapist says if the sky were to suddenly open up, there would be no law. There would be no rule. There would only be you and your memories choices you've made and the people you've touched if this world were to end there would only be you and him and no one else that's kind of a bummer (laughs) yeah i don't know about that as therapy (laughs) advice I'm not yeah. sure. I have a lot of questions as we've covered in other movies. I have a lot of questions about the therapeutic technique of this particular practitioner of like, just like, you know, her hypnosis seems to not exactly produce the results intended. Unless the intention was to watch Jake Gyllenhaal. Watch him uh, jerk off. Jacket. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Squeeze one out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming all the therapy and ultrasound is is closely grounded in real life techniques and, and absolutely no yeah. it was it was grounded in this movie yeah <laughs> it, was, it was that that scene that hypnosis scene was yeah. uh, where it came from yes it's the the headwaters <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's amazing so we have the party the Halloween party Gretchen sleeps with Donnie you have Lovell Terrace apart you have Under the Milky Way those are like beautiful moments and. When he looks inside her portal 
and his eyes get big and he comes out of it and says, we only have a little bit of time left. Both of their voices are also distorted. So like I had the sense that there's some time mm. dilatation thing happening there. Um, but they head to grandma death's house. We have Ricky and Seth. I don't know why they're overreacting. Like who gives a fuck? These guys or are like, why are pulling... they even there? Why, why are yeah. they there? They're robbing the house. What? They just have knives and masks. they're just mad at Donnie, yeah. right? They're, they're pissed off at Donnie for having embarrassed them or something. Mm. They did set there was a line earlier that set up that people go in there and take things or something. Yeah. Or that yeah. yeah. I think this is I think this is the Graham Green echo because it's literally the same thing of like there's an elderly person who's a little off and like the local kids just go and fuck with them. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I, I felt like they were only there to fuck with Donnie. And mm. when he when Seth asked him if he called the fucking cops, Donnie just says Deuce ex machina. Which yeah. is pretty on the nose, right? In yeah. Terms of- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not the like, subtlest. Just a little. That, that that feels like when in a song they don't know the lyrics and they just put like la 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 or whatever and like that just sticks. Like just <laughs> having Deuce Ex Machina as an explicit line of dialogue in your script and you never go back and fill it in. That's uh, rough. Feels a little a little lazy. Frank is driving his car, he swerves to get around Grandma Death and he runs over Gretchen. Donnie kills him. I guess at that point, making him a manipulated dead and creating the opportunity to have the tangent universe for all of this stuff to unfold. Um, But Donnie ultimately takes Gretchen's body. He goes back up on the ridge. He sees that there's going to be the portal. The jet engine gets ripped off. He reverses time and gets back in bed in time to be there to die for the end of the film. Woo! Did I get everything right there? That's that's what happens. That's the plot so he, of the movie. He, it's it's by his actions that time is reversed. It's not just sort of like a phenomenon that he's caught in. No, he specifically has telekinetic powers. The canonical explanation is that he has telekinetic powers and is able to what? Like yeah, like rip really? the yeah, rip the engine off and like bring it back through the portal. Yeah. Oh wow! I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he he kills his mom and sister on that plane. No, he br- no. he kills the tangent universe so that it doesn't yes. so that it doesn't happen. The he tangent universe uh, is created by him not being in the bed. Right. That's what that's what creates in the first loop. place. Without him be- in that first pass by causing the engine to go back in the first place, and then also being there to be landed on. That's closing the tangent universe. And his mom mm. is there smoking a cigarette. Uh, at the end of the film, so she's alive. Hmm. Yeah, and it's a okay. little weird, right? Because both the dad's there, she's there. She obviously landed and came home or whatever, and discovered that that was going. So things are a little bit different. But wait, we're not we're not like back to the beginning of October in that scene. We are. We, we are, are back yeah, to yeah, October second. Yeah. Yeah, 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 we are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. he goes. So back she in hasn't time. returned. She's oh. just there. Yeah. Oh, you're right. You're right. She was yeah. previously. Yeah, I guess she disappeared when when the jet engine fell. Yeah. She she would have disappeared in the first place. Whoa. Okay, cool. Cool. I dig it. Like I love I love a time travel story if it is done in a way that there's a nice tight closed loop. I'm into that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think like the trick is that so I mean some of this is just like there's a pre-911 versus post-911 vibe to things. And, and like, it's not so much the fact that it's a plane crash because, like, you know, you should be able to show plane crashes, but it's more just like sort of what the stakes of things are. And, and like what this movie says is that his choosing to live was too harmful for the ones that he loves 
and the universe as a whole. So he had to die. He had to kill himself. And I that mean, more is broadly, like, he mm. was willing to sacrifice himself just for Gretchen. Like, leave everything else off. Right. If Gretchen dies, that's, that is enough for him to say, I'm willing to sacrifice myself, which to me is a beautiful thing. It, it, there's a part of that that is. However, there's also a part of it that's just when you're a teenager, everything feels like the end of the world. And some teenagers convince themselves that if they were to die, like the world would be a better place. Like, mm -hmm. that's not exactly what this movie is saying, but it's not not what this movie is saying. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was something that I wrote down. I was sort of like, because, because there's such a theme of like, almost every female character, or at least like the, the significant ones to Donnie, like, you know, the, the Jaina Malone character and his mom and sister die or, uh, you know, are, are going to die. And Jaina Malone dies and has this like terrible, horrific, uh, tragic, traumatic background as well right so it's sort of like the the fantasy of of all the tragic things that happened to the women in his life being then all about him like he gets to then be the be the savior or something yeah mm -hmm. and, and like and like sophie also points out in chat like we're told explicitly by the therapist that he's experiencing daylight hallucinations and is this is a symptom of of paranoid schizophrenia so another gloss on the movie is that he is a partially diagnosed, partially treated or treated by a questionable psychologist, uh, a paranoid schizophrenic, and he is having a delusion that leads him to kill himself. And the movie's sort of like being like, yeah, that's just what you got to do chill. sometimes. <laughs> like, it's a, <laughs> yeah. like, that part's not super great. And like, it kind of feeds back to the, the previous conversation of like, there was just this moment and this is the tail end of it of late nineties, white male nihilism, where it was just like, at its heart, it's nihilism, but on its surface, it looks really cool. And like, for me, like yeah. the best, the best version of that in this movie is the Love Will Tear Us Apart drop at the party. Like, Love Will Tear Us Apart is probably my favorite song of all time. If you drop it in a movie, I am going to love it. I love yeah. that it's dropped in this movie. I love the general vibe of this movie. Um, but at its heart, it's a little fucked up. And either because like I'm older or because like the stakes just seem different now, it like... <laughs> It just doesn't hit the same way it did when I fell in love with it uh, twenty years ago. Mm. Mm -hmm. You took it. You took it to a much deeper level than 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 I was. I was thinking. I'm with you, but like I, I feel like that that brought me back to like really appreciating it on this watch because it, because it so perfectly captures that moment of like right the kind of it's sort of like the moment. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe the the end of the 20th century. It's sort of like the sort of the white male being the center of culture kind of reaches its limit and mm. and it kind of does like they, he kind of performs that in this movie like he just like goes all the way there and then just destroys himself i think i've seen this movie three times and it was like the first time i was like this is perfect because i was like in fully in that mindset and then i matured a little bit yep. and rewatched it and was like this is atrocious i can't stand this movie it's really embarrassing <laughs> to watch because it like brought me in contact with like how I felt all of those things when I was 16 or something that was really embarrassing. And then like now rewatching it, it was like, Oh, this is really interesting. Cause now I can like stand back and see the shape of that, that person or that, that mindset or something. It's interesting. You say that because I have heard that 
middle sentiment from a lot of people that it's embarrassed it feels embarrassing because they did love it so much yeah. and mm. then there's that period of like, like i can't believe oh, i love no. that so yeah when you rewatch <laughs> it you're just like oh no mm. <laughs> yeah. mm. well what's your final rating for this rob where do you on a, on a five star where, where do you land on donnie darko i mean it's one of the i think most accomplished indie films first time filmmaker it's up there i think it's i think people are going to be watching it for a long time mm. and that that uh you know only happens when you get something right I, I hope richard kelly keeps making movies and yeah that was something where is he gone he hasn't made something in like 12 years or something like that i know he has a lot he said he was on a podcast not too long ago saying that he has a lot of projects mm. in the works and ready so. seems like it would be the perfect time for his aesthetic like just give him a Netflix show, and I think it'll be a hit. So, so I'm going to land on four stars for this film. I think it is an important film, and I think because of all of the cinematic aspects of it, um, it really, really works. To me, it's it's the it, it's Jim. It is you know the music drops uh, and the cinematography are just are just too good, um, and I think Jake does a great job. Connor, uh, is it is it Letterboxd rules? Are we allowed half stars? Letterboxed, you could do half stars. I feel like, I feel like this is solidly a 3.5 for me. Mm. Yeah, mm. three and a half. Yeah, good. Yeah. Makes sense. And Jason, how about you? Rat us out. Yeah, I, I would give it a three and a half as well. Like I on a good day, I could see it at four. I think it was just really, I got struck so much by just thinking about like sort of this moment of also another movie I love, like Fight Club and and just like how it just doesn't hit the same anymore because it just yeah. like, it, it just like, somehow ended up getting unmoored from the time it was of its time. And that time is no longer. And, and now it's, it's like project mayhem would be a big bummer. I mean, like in the movie, it's meant to be a big bummer too, but like it'd be a big bummer here. All right, Connor, your first time on Dune pod, who would Tilda Swinton play? Uh, I mean, maybe Frank, I was going to say Frank. Perfect. Excellent. She'd be amazing. The blood dripping from the eye and uh, and her voice all uh, all distorted. And and in a love affair with Maggie Gyllenhaal. How good would that mm, be? Delicious. Whoa. Oh, my God. Oh. Golly. Incredible. Rob. I mean, if I don't think too much about it, I'll go Jim Cunningham. <laughs> oh, that's really good. Oh, shit. That wins. oh, my God. Her in those pleated pants. <laughs> yeah, yeah. With the golf shirt tucked in. Yes. Yeah, her her as Jim Cunningham wearing Patrick Swayze's clothes. That is incredible. Jason, do you have a push beyond that or is that good? I was gonna say Grandma Death. Um because oh. I like I like Tilda <laughs> in old makeup. And I yeah. think yeah. like I think there's more that could be done with that actor in general. Mm. Like I think that that's character? a part Yeah, that character. I think that part really could benefit from a little bit more. I say I say prequel movie. The R. Sparrow story starring Tilda Swinton. Swinton. There we Print go. It. All right. Richard Kelly, what Richard. the fuck are you doing? Call us. Get, get on the line. <laughs> Call our people. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Let's do a couple of letters here real quick. First one is from our good man, Kev. Hey, Doom Pod, it's Kev. I know you probably wanted to hear about how much I love Southland Tales or how much I kind of dismissed Donnie Darko today, but that's all boring and dumb. I want to tell people about Denny Villeneuve's Dune. Without giving anything <laughs> away, I do want to say that even though there was a lot of fun made about the speedboat in a bathtub comment, he's actually not far off. 
If you're comfortable seeing Dune in a movie theater, please see it in large format or at least at an art house or somewhere where you know you're going to be getting quality, super bright projection. And if you're going to see it at home, you know, if you've been considering upgrading your home theater, this might be the time for that. Or if you have a trusted family member or friend <coughs> who you know has a killer AV system, please go there, see the film in as big, loud, and bright a way as possible. Folks, I don't want to be too hyperbolic about it, but this is a Fellowship of the Ring moment if there ever was one, and you're going to want to remember where you were when you saw Denny Villeneuve's Dune for the first time, especially Jesus. if you're however many <laughs> hours in to the Donnie Darko episode of a Dune podcast. As for Donnie Darko <laughs> itself, you know, I wish I had seen it 15 years ago. I think it kind of holds up, but again, if you weren't there at the time, kind of tough to relate to and see, especially once you've seen Southland Tales. Thank you very much, guys. Talk to you soon. <laughs> That's great. What a uh, great voice. Amazing. amazing. I, just, I keep saying, like, uh, the hype is just uncontained. I, I'm willing to believe. Uh, I guess we'll find out on Wednesday. It's so close now. This is Kev, who is a trusted, you know, a trusted source. Trusted advisor. This. Yeah. Yeah. My God. So I have had that feeling, I mean, for the last two years, but just in general, I've been having that feeling of like fellowship. That's the right analog to this. Like we'll be looking at it like, of course, Dune was done right by Denny Villeneuve, just like Peter did a perfect job. All right. We have one letter and then we have one more voicemail. This letter is from Sophia Jones. She's Sophia back. Jones. Mm -hmm. Working her way through the back catalog. She says, hey, it's Sophia again. Sorry, it's been so long, but I'm not done reading Chapter House yet, so I was waiting to listen to that episode. I've decided to jump over that one for now and come back to it when I finish the book so I don't fall more behind. I'm excited to get back to listening again. I think I've got about three or four unplayed episodes lined up, so I guess it's time to binge. Hell yeah. But as for my real news, my tickets to see Dune on the 22nd are now booked. I'm oh, taking my great. sister to a theater near where we live. Our seats are reserved. And even though she's never read a Dune book, I think I've ranted about it to her enough to justify her viewing. This will be the first movie I will see back in the theaters. And I'm so excited. Anyway, hope to be caught up on the show again soon. And I'm counting down the days, currently 11, until we finally get to see the film we've all been waiting for, Sophia. Mm. Thank you so much, Sophia, for writing in. I will say, Jason. Part of his reaction, we got to go to the IMAX preview screening about two months ago, and Jason was like out of his head describing it as like the last scene in Raiders with his face melting. And part of that is this idea of so many people not having been in the theater forever. So right. we also have that running in our favor for people being ecstatic. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. All right. Last voicemail from our trusted associate, Corey. Doompod. Hey, it's Corey from Austin, Texas. Really excited. We're talking about the 2001 dark comedy starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Bubble Boy. Hurts <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Danny Trejo. Oh, wait. This isn't the 2001 uh, movie with Jake Gyllenhaal we're talking about? Oh, Johnny Darko. Mm, possibly inferior to Bubble Boy. I don't know if y'all remember Bubble Boy was... Uh, Kind of a weird mishmash of the boy in the plastic bubble meets the graduate meets like not quite like American Pie. Anyway, it's really not a good movie. Uh, <laughs> Donnie Darko is really much better. Obviously, we all know that. 
don't ever question my dedication to Sparkle Motion is pretty much all I have to say. And who would Tilda Swinton play? Why, Kitty, of course. Or maybe Grandma Death. But let's Ah. stick with Kitty because there's, like, more lines. Catch you guys soon, actually, in person. Coming up really soon. I'm really excited about this trip coming up. I'm super excited about you guys getting to see it without me first, but that's cool because then we're all going to get together after that and have a slam-bam good time or whatever. All right. See you guys. Awesome. Corey. This is our good friend, Corey, from Austin, Texas, who is flying out to San Francisco to come watch the movie with us, which is killer. And also, we should say, his Dune issue of Scree magazine, his cut-and-paste job, awesome uh, zine, is now back and available at thegrumpus.com. So check that out uh, and buy an issue. Um, Connor, what do you have to plug? Oh, well, actually, all of the Generous Bosom books are just recently all back in print. So Mm. if you go to breakdownpress.com, you can order you can order all four of those books. The newest book just came out. Uh, It's the longest of all four. It's nearly as long as the first three combined. Wow. A lot of a lot of comics to dive into. If you and this is the conclusion of the story. It is. Yeah. Nice. And like completely closed or open for for future revisiting or what what happens as of now? Completely. I think I think it's completely closed, but, you know, never say never. Mm. Mm. All right. Rob, how about you? What do you have to plug, my friend? Um, In early December, uh, Ultrasound, the movie that we've been talking about, is playing at Other Worlds Film Festival. In Austin, Texas. Whoa! So, uh, Corey, if you're out there, mm. um, yeah, that that could be a fun time out. Great. All right, I would love to meet up. Let's see if we can uh, if we can work that out in yeah, Austin. Yeah, if you're in Austin, that'd be awesome. God, that'd be killer to check that awesome out. Awesome too. Yeah. Uh, Jason, what are you plugging this week? Uh, let's see. <laughs> this week, um, I am pretty excited about Dune. Let's see. I'm pretty excited about Dune coming out. Uh, I went to a kid's birthday party over the weekend and let me tell you, there are these guys you can hire for a kid's birthday party called the bubble man. And Uh the bubble man shows up with his own like Mondo sized bubble wands and bubble apparatus strings things that you, yeah. Yeah. And his own special soap. Like he's basically blend proprietary Mm. blend. Yeah. Non-toxic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's basically like a magician, except he he has no tricks. It's just bubbles. But it's captivating. Like it kids is a, eat that shit up. Yeah, they are they, into it. They love that. I'm just now entering the world of kids' birthday parties, and <laughs> the bubble man is a must book. I'm gonna call him. I'm gonna see if we can get him on the red carpet with us with Denny. We'll be like, oh, Denny. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you guys, I think we did it. Did we do it? Uh I think we did it. Yeah. 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 And that's it for this episode of Dune Pod. I want to thank Jason, Rob, and Connor for a great conversation. Next week, it's all been leading to this. Dune Pod hosts an exclusive IMAX opening night premiere in San Francisco for 200 of our closest friends, family, and fellow Dune fanatics. Jason and I give our detailed spoilerful reviews as well as instant reactions from audience members, plus special surprises. Watch Dune in movie theaters and on HBO Max and then fire this episode up. If you're enjoying this show, we need your help. 
Leave us a five-star rating and review on Amazon Music or wherever you listen to your podcasts, as it really helps new listeners find the show. And be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button so you never miss an episode. DunePod is a Tape Deck Podcast John, a production of H Industries. Our artwork is by Catcher, and our theme music was composed by Toby Forsman of Whipsong Music. Clips and transcripts were provided by Sophie Shin. The episode was edited by Maria Passingham of Edit Audio and produced by me, H. Thanks for listening. We'll see everybody next week for the big one. Bye.